It is true, Father, that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And we look forward to the day when we will be able to praise you. All of us clothed in white, resurrected bodies and seeing you in all your glory. And we look forward to that day because we, we love worshiping you because of who you are and who you're continuing to re- reveal yourself to us to be. And even practically for me, Lord, I love Grace and Truth Bible Church. There is no other group of people I would rather be with to worship alongside my brothers and sisters in praise of Your name and to believe the truths that we sing together. Lord, I'm also reminded of the, uh, those words of uh, Bebo Normans we come to, to your text today that all the world needs all my soul needs is all your love to cover me so that all the world might see that I have nothing without You. And I pray that You would use my voice and my efforts to make this text clear to do that. To show Your people, to remind Your people, and to prepare us to tell the world that You are all that they need. And I pray that You would accomplish that goal. I need your assistance and ask for it. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Before I read the text, I want to begin with the question that it more or less I've entitled the message, which is, why, why do you seek Jesus? You're here today because at some level, you're seeking Jesus. You might be simply fascinated by who Jesus is in Christianity, and you decided to check out a church to learn more. And if so, we're very grateful that you've joined us. It's also possible that you've grown up in church. And so you're seeking to know more and more about Jesus and Christianity so that you can decide if this is something you want to stick with. You might be here because you're actually in a desperate situation in life. And of all the other things that you've tried for comfort and for hope, they've failed. And so you're here seeking out Jesus in desperation. There are many reasons why people are drawn to Jesus. And this text that we're going to look at will point out some of them. 
But I'll also point out that seeking Jesus isn't enough. There are many people who seek Jesus and yet fail to receive what Jesus was offering and really understand who Jesus is. And there's a vast difference between being drawn to Jesus and worshiping Jesus. So let's look at how that gets drawn out in John 11:45 through 12:11. Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, "What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish." He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. To a, call, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for the 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
So simple outline for today's text. Verses 11.55 to the end of chapter 11, 57, or 45-57, really highlights the reality that many people are looking for Jesus. Both these crowds as well as the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then in chapter 12, verses 1-7, through we're going to see a number of characters, particularly um, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Judas, and their heart regarding Jesus will get um, illustrated for us in their both real and, in the case of Judas, false worship. And then finally, in verses 9 through 11, we will note the risk of being used by God and consider the Pharisees' response to even Lazarus' resurrection. So first, let's look at verses 45 through 54 of chapter 11. As these various people are looking for Jesus. It says in verse 45 again, Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. So again, just to remind us of the context, this is right after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. In fact, if you, if you look at your Bibles, the last words that we see before verse 45 is, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus has just been resurrected and then you have these Jews responding to that act. And really you have two different responses to what Jesus did. Some in light of this miracle, believe Him. They believe in Jesus. But some are concerned, so concerned, in fact, that they run to the Pharisees, the leaders of their religion, and want to get their counsel on the matter. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees hear what has happened, they're really concerned. They're extremely troubled by the news of Lazarus because we see that they call a council together of both the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, that might not seem shocking at first glance, but really what we have here is the two rival factions in Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together, establishing a joint meeting in order to get counsel on what they should do with Jesus. So this would be like the Republican senators calling together a joint session with the Democratic senators in order to come together on some joint policy because they don't know what to do. And yet, despite their, very, their vastly different ideological differences, these two groups are able to agree on one thing. That Jesus must go. And the heart of why they're threatened by Jesus is seen in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So their place refers to their position in society. Their position of influence and of power. They're going to lose that if Jesus is allowed to continue his work. Moreover, they also believe that the health of the nation is in jeopardy. And this is somewhat reasonable. 
They're afraid that such miracles will lead to a revolutionary frenzy. And if this happens, it's whatever movement is started is going to inevitably be squashed by the might of the Roman imperial military. And so they're, they're concerned. So I don't believe this is just simply an excuse to attack Jesus. We've already seen the crowds have gotten to feverish pitches before about what Jesus has been doing. And especially now, he has just raised somebody from the dead. These people are convinced he's the Messiah. We're going to see in uh, next Sunday's passage of the triumphal entry. They are ready for the new kingdom to come in. They are ready to crown Jesus king. And these chief leaders of Rome are extremely concerned about what Rome is going to do in response. But the high priest is convinced that he knows what the best thing to do about this dilemma. So he says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas, the high priest, in simply making an assessment of how he thinks we, or we, they should deal with the situation, actually prophesies the very thing that Jesus is seeking to accomplish. That one should die for the whole nation. But note also, he does not do this of his own accord. Which tells us that there is somebody else behind this death sentence upon Jesus. This is is the statement that brings about the death of the Son of God. And how is that how is that death sentence brought about? Who's behind this? The Father. Why would God work to bring about the death of his son? It states it in order to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God brought about, caused Caiaphas to say these things. He prophesied, which means it wasn't, he wasn't trying to do this. Yes, in his own mind, Caiaphas was trying to deal with a problem, but we see behind this, he's prophesying what is going to bring about the death of Jesus. God brought about the death of Jesus because we needed a substitute to die on our behalf. We needed it. God is doing this Because of our great need. And so in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The other group of people that this text highlights are the crowds who are fascinated by Jesus. And we see because Jesus is no longer walking about openly because of this death sentence that's on his head. They're wondering what his next step is going to be. And so when Passover comes around, these crowds who have gathered at Jerusalem 
have him as the, the main topic of conversation. So he's, he's the main buzz for these two million or so people who are in Jerusalem. Everybody's talking about Jesus, wondering what is he going to do? Verse 56 tells us, they were looking for Jesus. They were seeking him, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And if you look carefully at that phrase, it betrays an excitement about this conflict. They're aware of this opposition that's against Jesus. And they're aware that the Pharisees are seeking him out so that they can arrest him. So these crowds are very interested in Jesus, but it seems like in a very superficial manner. They're, they're excited about this conflict, this sensationalism surrounding him, more than they are about his teaching or his claims to be God. Jesus has reached this celebrity status. And as we know, especially in our own culture, people are drawn to celebrity. So just to draw this out, imagine that overnight, since he was leading worship today, we'll pick on Tim. Imagine that overnight, Tim writes a song on and publishes it on iTunes, and it becomes a hit overnight. All of a sudden, he has this major following on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, television reporters and uh, radio stations are calling him up for an interview. He's got crowds of devoted fans outside that are begging for his autograph. He can't even go to work because he, he needs a, uh, a police escort because the paparazzi are chasing him down because they want to get you know, some sort of memorabilia. Because they know it's probably a one-hit wonder. <laughs> well, I said it was a one-hit no wonder. Maybe I didn't say it, but in my mind, it's a one-hit wonder. But at that time, we who know Tim would not be more drawn to him all of a sudden because he's got this celebrity status. We would be drawn to Tim because he's our friend. Because we know him personally. Our affection and our, and our friendship with him wouldn't change. We, we wouldn't now seek him out because of who he is. That, that's what's drawn us to him. That's why Jesus' disciples are drawn to him. is isn't because of his celebrity status, like these crowds, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And similarly, people today are drawn to Jesus not because of who he is or what he says, but simply because he's some American or we could even say Western icon of religion. We, we, we've grown up in a culture where religion is normative, particularly Christianity. And so when people have trouble in their life or difficulty or they're looking for questions, it's natural to think about going to Jesus. He's the, he's the celebrity of America. Even if, even if you don't worship Jesus, people recognize they have to consider him at some level if they're American. And still today, most Americans would consider themselves Christians. But it's not, they're not drawn to him because of what he says or who he is in particular, but because of his status in our culture. In a sense, he's, a, he's like a celebrity, a religious icon. So we go from this scene of people seeking out Jesus in a general fashion, and then John moves from this noisy scene in Jerusalem with the crowds and Pharisees looking for Jesus to the place where Jesus actually is. 
were taken to Bethany, an intimate setting where Mary and Martha and Lazarus have Jesus at their house. And it's here that we see a, a demonstration of genuine worship and what genuine worship looks like, at least outwardly. And it's vividly contrasted with the false worship of Judas. And John wants us to see that just because a person is seeking Judas, or sorry, Judas, I'm going to do that a few times, I'm sure. Just because a person is seeking Jesus outwardly, they look like they're following Jesus, does not mean that they actually worship Jesus from their heart. So from the outside, really everybody at this dinner would seem to be seeking Jesus, following him, appear to be genuine believers. But John goes out of his way to help us see this is not the case. Beginning at verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. You see the differences between this real and false worship. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so he gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. John tells us that this family has thrown him a feast in order, apparently, to celebrate Jesus' presence with them. And most likely, it's because of what Jesus has actually done. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so it's, it's obvious that they'd want to throw a feast And note how each member of the family responds. You have Martha serving. You have Lazarus reclining at the table, which means he was in a position for intimate conversation with their distinguished guest. It would be like today, Jesus and John were sitting on the back porch sipping iced tea together. He's in a place to be able to converse with Jesus intimately. And then there's Mary, whose actions become the focal point of the passage. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. The word ointment. It's actually a familiar one. It's, it's the word muron, from which we get the English word myrrh. And it's because such oil was actually typically made from myrrh. But this particular oil, oil was made of nard, which is a particularly fragrant oil made from the root of a nard plant, which is found in northern India. And so this aromatic oil... Would, been, would have been extremely expensive. It says that it, it costs a whole year's pay of an average laborer. So her action would have been equivalent to somebody today 
taking a jar of perfume that costs $30,000 or so and pouring it upon the ground or upon Jesus. And out of curiosity, I decided to just to, to find out if such perfume existed today. What was the most, I wanted to find out what is the most expensive perfume you can buy. And with the internet, it's really easy to find that sort of information. In fact, there is a bottle uh, of perfume that costs $215,000. It's called Clive Christian's Imperial Majesty's Perfume. Only 20 bottles were ever made. And maybe that's because only about 20 people would ever buy $215,000 worth of perfume. You'll be encouraged to know that the next most expensive perfume um, was Hermes Perfume 24 Faubourg. I might have mispronounced that. Um, And it only cost $1,500 per one ounce. So I don't know how it comes to me. Eight ounce bottles of perfume, so eight times $1,500. $10,000 or so maybe for, for a bottle. Still, you can understand... Therefore, why Judas responds with shock to what Mary did. At the surface, Judas's complaint would actually seem logical. I mean, think about it. Is Mary really being a good steward of the resources that she's been given? $30,000 worth or so. Gone. Judas' complaint seems logical, right? You could have given this to the needy people of the world. But recognize what actually Mary's action demonstrates. By pouring out this nard, this expensive nard, she was showing to Jesus that her heart was not set on the things of this life. See, unlike Judas, she was not following Jesus because she thought she could find some temporal benefit of following him. She loved him for who he was and what he had done for her and for her family. And moreover, think about this. If ever there was such a use for $30,000 nard, this was it. This was it. And our present sacrifices might seem illogical to those who, are, who have their eyes set on things below. But actions like Mary's will echo through eternity. In fact, Mark's account of this scene has Jesus saying, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I think this is why Jesus gets really sharp. Where he says, leave her alone. Shows how protective Jesus actually is of his genuine worshipers. He says, leave her alone that for the day of my burial she may keep it. And it's not super clear exactly what Jesus means. But I think the best explanation is that what Jesus is saying is that when all is said and done, after Jesus has been laid in the grave, Mary will not regret this act. 
in a few days when Jesus is dead, she's not going to look back wishing that she would have used that nard and showed her Lord while she still had time how much she loved him for what he had done. She will know that she did not let a love for fine things trump her opportunity to show her love for Christ. And think about how this contrasts to what Judas says in his love of wealth. As John notes, Judas loved money so much, as we'll see a little bit later, he sold Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. That was what Jude, that's what Jesus meant to Judas. The text said explicitly that Judas didn't care about the poor because he cared about the money. It's demonstrated by the fact that he would actually steal money out of the group's bag. To Judas, Jesus was just a means to an end. And maybe initially, he was drawn to Christ because he saw this guy really has messianic capability. This, this guy could be it. And so he follows him thinking that when this guy becomes king, I want to be on the inside track. And so as it became clear and clear to Judas that Jesus was not going there, all of a sudden Jesus meant less and less to Judas to the extent that he, he, he turns his back on him and sells him essentially for 30 pieces of silver. But Mary showed that Jesus meant more to her than anything in this life. And although it might seem ridiculous at first glance, no doubt Jesus uses this beautiful act of devotion. See, whether Mary realizes it or not, not, and it's not clear to me whether she understood really what she was doing. She might have. But whether she understood it or not, Mary is preparing Jesus' body for burial. God in His sovereignty uses Mary's act of devotion, this ridiculous act of devotion, to actually put that nard to the best use it could possibly have ever been used. Probably when that nard was made and bottled, it was probably being prepared for the, the use of some king or nobleman in their death. And God is using Mary's act to prepare the burial for not just a king, but the king of kings. This reminds me of the account in Mark 12 of the widow's offering. In verse 41, Mark tells us, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you. Whenever Jesus says, truly I say to you, you say, listen. That's his way of saying it. Emphasize, this is true. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. 
And the structure of this passage in John puts the focus on the tense contrast between how Judas sees Jesus and how Mary sees Jesus. And it also highlights the animosity that will result from those who are earthly minded against those who are heavenly minded. I mean, Judas doesn't just get upset about the money. He, he actually, he's complaining about what Mary has done. He's suggesting that she's being foolish. Judas is sickened by this beautiful display of devotion. And people who do not recognize the supreme worth of Christ are naturally, of course, they're naturally going to find such devotion as that as ludicrous, as ridiculous. Why would somebody waste all of that? And they would say that because to Jesus, Jesus to them is simply a means to that end. And and that's the end they're seeking. Why would anybody give up what they most seek in their heart? Jesus is just a means to an end. He might be a means to a better job. Maybe a better life, more friends, more stuff. And remember now, lest we forget the whole context of John, lest we forget why John is writing. All right, it's right there on the, on the screen. John is writing that you may believe. As he says in 2031, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The reason this story is here is for us. John recognizes. He saw it at his time and he knew it was going to be the case in the future. John recognizes there are many people who are following Jesus because of what Jesus can give them. Not because they believe he really is the son of God. There are many people who are Judases. Who see Jesus as a means to an end. Not as the very end of creation. And he, he wants them to wake up. He wants them to see it in their heart. And that's really hard for us to do, I think, particularly because we tend to have this idea of Judas as he's on par with Hitler. Right? He's one of those people that nothing good could be said of. And what we fail to recognize is he's us. He's like us. He's... He could easily be one of the people sitting in this room. I mean, we all feel it. We are all tempted to look to Jesus as a means to an end. And John wants us to see that's missing it. That's missing it completely. If Jesus isn't everything to you, you don't get it. And if you don't get it, you do not have life in his name. That is what we're supposed to see in this. This contrast between what genuine worship looks like when a person understands who Jesus is and what false worship looks like when Jesus is just a means. John does not want us to be duped. So the question we need to ask ourselves in response is, Why are you following Jesus? Why are you here today? 
Is it to gain some benefit from Him in this life? Or is it because He's the only thing worth living for? Another way to ask the question is, what is it that you wouldn't be willing to part with on account of Christ? This is is very applicable, especially in light of what happened just a month or so ago in southern Oregon. It's very real that somebody could walk up to you and say, do you believe in Jesus? And if you give the wrong answer, according to them, they'll kill you. It's not that much of a stretch of imagination. And I don't bring that up for sensationalism just to, just to highlight this is real. And we need, we need to come to grips with this question. And just the other day, I was driving home uh, with Isaiah from school. And Isaiah asked a lot about baptism. Isaiah has a, has a desire to be baptized. And what I was trying to explain to Isaiah is, understand, son, what you're choosing if you want to get baptized. And I sat Daniel and Isaiah down and I said, um, this is a little troubling to my wife, but I, I said, if, if bad guys came into this house and said, if you, I'm going to shoot your mom, or no, I didn't say shoot, I said, chop off the heads of your mommy and your daddy if you do not deny Christ, if you say you do not believe in him, what would you say? And in his honesty, he said, I don't know. And I think that's an honest, I mean, the honest answer is, is, is the right answer, right? Jesus has to be everything to us. And God is going to test your devotion to Him. And when He tests, you understand, you need to understand that when God tests you, He's not being cruel. He's trying to help you see All you need is Jesus. You don't need that stuff He's trying to take away from you. Jesus is really all that you need. I also want to be careful as we look at this text because I I think we might be tempted to to think the, the right way to apply this text is to feel compelled to want to Duplicate Mary's act. And there may be something good in that. There's probably mostly good in that. But I don't think that's really the point. The danger there is we might want to duplicate Mary's act as feeling like we need to prove ourselves somehow to God. Or maybe even to prove ourselves to our brothers and sisters in Christ. There may be even a a hint of self-glory there. That's definitely not the point. I think the point is, we need to recognize what Mary recognized. Mary did this act, not to to prove a point. Mary did this act because she recognized who Jesus was. He was everything to her. It was not a second thought of what should I do with this nard. It was natural. She was not compelled. She delighted in this sacrifice. She rejoiced in it. This, Jesus did not have to wrench that nard out of her hand. She came freely and willingly and with great rejoicing in her heart. Not to prove a point. She wasn't trying to say, look at me, Judas. She was trying to say, 
simply, you are everything to me. And if it's not Nard, it'll be my life, Jesus. And that's what we need to see. As Jesus will say a few verses later, chapter 12, verse 25, we'll look at it next week. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What's our life in this world if we have Jesus Christ? This brings us to verse 9. The risk of being used by God. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of Him... Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. See, Jesus told his followers that the world's animosity is really not about them. It's because of him. It's not you that they hate. If they hate you for following me, it's me. It's me. If people hate us because of us, well, that is a problem. That means we're, we're being jerks. And we should change. We need to get our acts together. But if a person hates you because you're a follower of Christ and because you're seeking to honor Him in your life, don't be surprised at their animosity. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Lazarus simply because God had used him to bring glory to His Son. Which tells us, and I think this is the point, being used by God is a risky endeavor. Jesus is going to highlight this point again a few verses later. Verse 24, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Bearing fruit, being used by God to glorify his name, comes at a cost. Namely, death. It could be physical death. In the least, it's going to demand us dying to a love of what this world treasures. If we choose to live for the glory of God, this means we are choosing not to live for the glories of this life, whatever those glories might be. To choose to live for the glory of life is a, cho- is a choice not to live for what everybody else in the world is living for. That's it. And this is the sort of life that God is going to use to bear much fruit. This is how you bear fruit. This next week, many people will be celebrating Reformation Day. Because on October 31st, 1517, is the day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. And therefore, many people are also going to be singing the popular hymn that he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I think this passage puts a little more weight on Luther's words when he writes, Let goods and kindred go, 
this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Let's pray. It seems most appropriate to simply ask You, Christ, to help us recognize more of who You are. That You would take our theology, You would take our intellectual understanding, that the truths we assent to and help us to believe them to a greater depth. To a greater depth that when we have opportunity to show our devotion to you, it would not be with hesitation. It would be with joyful readiness. That there would be such a, an overflowing awe of who you are. That we would do anything to seek to glorify and exalt your name. That is not natural. And so we ask for you, to, Holy Spirit, to do the supernatural work in our hearts. To make us to be the kind of people who will be fruitful in their lives. We want to have fruitful lives. We want to live this life according to what you've designed each of us to do. And how you've designed this church to be. And so we ask these things in your name.